Well, we have gathered to celebrate the birth of Christ. God come to earth in human flesh, which means that the baby in Bethlehem was both fully God and fully human. Now, that's what we, we claim. My question is, is it a true claim or is it like false advertising? I, I don't know about you, but false advertising really bugs me. Uh, my wife handed me a frozen pizza the other day. She knows I love pizza, but because of some allergies I've recently discovered I have, I can't eat this favorite food of mine anymore. So I, I can't do gluten, which means no more Lou Malnati's butter crust. Oh, you feel my pain? Yeah, I can't do dairy anymore. No, no cheese on a, what is a pizza without cheese? So she was at Jewel and she's in the frozen food section and comes across a gluten-free, dairy-free pizza, comes home, presents me with it. And I'm here to tell you that a gluten-free, dairy-free pizza tastes absolutely nothing like a real pizza. <laughs> I mean, if you, have, if you ever have the misfortune of, of getting one, just throw out the pizza and eat the box, okay? Because it, it tastes... Uh, would taste a whole lot better. I told Sue, I said, this is false advertising. I mean, they can't say this is, a, this is not a pizza. So when Christians gather and say, this baby born in Bethlehem is God come in the flesh, fully God, fully human, true claim or false advertising? Now, interestingly, in, in our contemporary rationalistic scientific culture, we really struggle with the first half of that equation, that the baby would be fully God. Oh, come on. See, it's hard for us to get our minds wrapped around that. That's a stretch of faith. But ironically, in the first century, what they struggled with was the second half of the equation, that the baby was fully human. See, back then, people could believe that God might choose to visit the planet, but that he might choose to visit the planet by actually becoming one of us, fully human? No way. In fact, even in the early church, the first century church, there were some so-called Christian leaders who taught that God hadn't really become one of us in Jesus. He had just appeared to be human in Jesus. They, they call their teaching docetism from the Greek verb dakeo, which means to appear to be or to seem like. Jesus didn't really become human. He only appeared to be human. And the church later condemned that teaching as heresy because it's obviously not what the Bible teaches. In fact, I want to take you back to Luke to the familiar Christmas story, the text that we get the Christmas event out of. I'll read to you a few verses, and I want you to note every word that you hear that points, that underscores the, the fact that Jesus is one of us, fully human. This is Luke 2, verses 4 through 7. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Verse 5, child. Verse 6, baby. Verse 7, firstborn, son. See, although Jesus is fully God which is a truth we'll cover at a, another Christmas Eve service. Today I want to drive home the truth that Jesus is also fully human. Now, wh why is that so important? Why is it so important to believe that God actually became one of us? Well, there, there are four 
missions that Jesus came to accomplish, each of which required that he be fully human. So let me give them to you tonight. If you want to fill out the outline in your program as we go, you'll find the outline right with the materials that you were handed when you came in tonight. The first thing I want to say about Jesus is that he's the revealer of God. That's why he had to come in human flesh. He came to reveal God to us. Now, if you brought a Bible with you, I want you to turn to John's Gospel. I'd like to reread a couple of verses that we looked at during our worship time tonight. And as you're turning, I want to tell you about a conversation I had this past week. I was coming out of Chicago on the train, and I sat next to this very affable, outgoing guy, and we started up this, uh, this discussion. And about 10 minutes into it, he said, so what do you do for a living? Now, I hate when people ask me that because I don't want to tell them that I'm a pastor because they get weird on me. You know, they start cleaning up their talk and they, it's just strange. So I figured, okay, if I'm going to tell them I'm a pastor, I'm just going to get some mileage out of it. So I said, I'm a pastor. By the way, where do you go to church? And he looked at me and he says, well, I don't, I don't go to church. I'm not into church. I grew up in a family uh, where church going was not the norm. But he said, I am into spirituality. And then he gave me an example of what he meant by that. He said, I've had several experiences in my life where I really encountered God in a moving way. He said, for example, I was traveling overseas. I was in Turkey, and I went to a museum in Istanbul, and I came across this statue of Jesus, the good shepherd carrying the lamb on his shoulders, and he said, it gave me goosebumps. And then he looked at me like, hmm? And I'm thinking to myself, now, I don't mean this in a derogatory fashion, but I'm thinking, like, that's it? That's, that's the best you got? See, you know that you went to a museum and you saw a statue of Jesus and you got goosebumps? Because I, I got to tell you, there is so much more of God to experience. And that's one of the reasons Jesus came to planet Earth as one of us, to reveal God in the flesh. So we'd have a, a full-orbed experience of God. That's what John says in his biography of Jesus, opening chapter, chapter 1. Let me read two verses to you, verses 14 and 18. John uses a nickname of Jesus, the Word. He was called God's Word. So the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory. It's the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's hand, the, the Father's side, has made him known. John says, Jesus, who pre-existed prior to Bethlehem as the Son of God in heaven, came to earth in human form to reveal, to make God the Father known to us. I, I especially like one of the phrases in verse 14. It says, Jesus made his dwelling among us. Now, if you were reading John's gospel in the original language it was written in, in Greek, what, what the phrase literally reads there, made his dwelling, is he pitched his tent among us. Kind of a verse for Boy Scouts, eh? But, but if you understand the Old Testament story, you'll know the significance of the phrase, pitched his tent. See, in Old Testament times, God's people were delivered from slavery, 400 years of slavery in Egypt, and they were pointed toward the promised land. And as they wandered through the wilderness, God instructed them to build a tent, a place where they would gather to worship him. 
And so they, they built this tent. They called it the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. And when it was completed, Scripture says, the glory of God, the presence of God descended on the place. And it was so powerful that for a time nobody could, nobody could get near it, much less go inside to worship God there. And so this tent became associated with the glory, with the presence of God. So you want to meet God? Well, go to the tent. Now, hundreds of years later, Jesus arrives on the scene, and John writes this biography of Jesus, and he says, he pitched his tent, made his dwelling among us. Verse 14, we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, come down on the tent. So it's no longer a case of, you want to meet God, go to the tent. Now it's, you want to meet God, go to Jesus. Jesus is the human embodiment of the glory of God. Now, friends, the fact of the matter is, many of us are willing to settle for about a thimbleful of experiencing God, knowing God. Like the guy on the train, you know, we're willing to live off occasional goosebump experiences, encounters with God. In fact, some of us probably came to a Christmas Eve service in the hopes that before the night's over, we'll get to light candles, sing Silent Night, and get goosebumps. But I'm here to tell you that Jesus has come to give you so much more. He wants you to have an intimate, in-depth, living, color experience of God. You want to know what God's like? Get to know Jesus. You say, well, how do you do that? Well, there are actually four short biographies of, of Jesus in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Ever read one of those? Or if you have, when, when was the last time you read one of those? Because to get to know Jesus is to get to know God. And I got a gift for you. If you've never read one of those Gospels, uh, we put together at Christ Community what we call a Next Steps packet. It's always available, but it's available tonight at all of the welcome centers of our four campuses. Next Steps, because it's for people who want to take next steps in a walk with God. And one of the things in the Next Steps packet is a, a New Testament with a bookmark in the biography of the Gospel of Mark, the shortest of the four biographies. So if you want to start getting to know Jesus, Christmas 2012, pick up a Next Steps packet when we're done tonight. So why did Jesus become one of us? So that, that he could reveal God to us, the human embodiment of the glory of God. Number two, he came to be our representative. Jesus became one of us so that he could serve is our representative. Now, you, you've probably heard it said before that the Bible is filled with prophecies. Maybe you've wondered what, it, what exactly a prophecy is. It, it's a foretelling, a predicting of a future event, but give me an example, Jim. Okay? Turn, if you would, if you've got a Bible, to Genesis chapter 1, first book in the Bible, because I'm going to show you what has to be one of the most incredible prophecies in the entire Scripture. And I'll set the stage as you're looking for Genesis in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you'll see it in a moment on the screen. Uh, God has just created the original couple, Adam and Eve. And he's placed them in a virtual paradise in the Garden of Eden. And so they're enjoying this wonderful life, a rich experience in relationship with God. And then Satan arrives on the scene. And Satan tempts them to disobey God. Now, if you're familiar with the story, you know that God had placed a tree in the center of the garden and said, you can eat from anything in the garden except that tree. As far as we know, this is the only prohibition they were given. Just one, just one rule. 
And the reason is that it was a test case. Would Adam and Eve choose to love, choose to obey God, trust God? Would they allow God to be the ruler of their lives? Or would they choose to disobey God and rule their own lives, be their own king and queen? Well, Satan tempts them to eat from this tree. They they disobey God, and God shows up. And God says, here are the consequences for your disobedience. And for Adam and Eve, it's death. You say, well, that's pretty severe for eating the wrong kind of fruit. But, But you need to understand, whenever we disobey God, what we're doing is we're unplugging from the giver of life. Okay, so when you disobeyed God today, which is something every one of us does, what you do, you're doing is, is pulling away from disconnecting from the one who gives life. And so the natural penalty is death. The wages of sin, the Bible teaches, is death. That's Adam and Eve's consequence. Then God turns to Satan and says, okay, I got a word of judgment for you. And this is where we find the amazing prophecy I mentioned a moment ago. Let me read it to you, and then I'll explain it to you. This is Genesis 3. Verse 15, God says to Satan, I will put enmity, hostility, between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. God says, Satan, from now on, it's going to be war between you and humankind. But one day, an offspring of Eve's, a descendant of Eve's, in other words, a human being is going to come along who destroys you. He's going to crush your head, Genesis 3, verse 15. However, in the process, you, Satan, you're going to strike his heel. You're going to do some damage to this descendant of Eve's. Now, hundreds of years later, this prophecy is fulfilled. Do you know who the descendant of Eve's is that the prophecy is talking about? If you know, call it out. It's Jesus. And and what event, what event is Jesus going toe-to-toe with Satan and destroying him? When does does that happen? Do you know? It happens at the cross. Listen to what the New Testament writer says about that. This is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. It says, since the children have flesh and blood... The writer of Hebrews is talking about us. Since we have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Okay, since we're people, Jesus became a people in Bethlehem. So that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery to their fear of death. Jesus is the fulfillment of Genesis 3, verse 15. He is the human descendant of Eve's who destroys Satan, according to Hebrews chapter 2. And how does he do it? By his death. But by going to the cross and taking the penalty that we deserve to pay, it's our sin that deserves death. We're the ones who've unplugged from the giver of life, and yet Jesus arrives on the scene, becomes one of us so that as as our representative, he can give his life on the cross. He can take death in our place. Why did Jesus become one of us? We had to to be our representative. Had to be a human being in order to give his life for human beings. I got to warn you something here. Jesus doesn't become your representative automatically. I mean, he's not going to force himself on anybody. And the truth of the matter is, some people choose to reject Jesus' offer to represent them. And some people, they just ignore it. 
They go through life, pay no attention to the offer, never say yes, never say no, just never say anything to it. And this is a very dangerous thing to do because ultimately somebody's got to pay for your sins and the penalty, the wages, is death. It's either going to be you or a representative. Jesus wants to be your representative. Have you made him your representative? See, that's, that's not something you want to leave the auditorium tonight unsure of. And so before we close, I'm going to make sure that you know how to make Jesus your representative. Why did he become one of us? So he could reveal God to us. Secondly, so that he could be our representative. Thirdly, Jesus became one of us to be a role model. Now, I want to go from Genesis at the beginning of your Bible to almost one of the last books of the Bible, 1 John. So if you got your own Bible, go all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, start backtracking until you get to 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Stop at chapter 2 of 1st John. How many of you remember back in the 90s, the rage of the uh, WWJD bracelet? You remember those? Okay, how many of you had one of those? Or how many of you still have one of those? Okay. And what does WWJD stand for? All four campuses. Good. What would Jesus do? Now, when we put those on back in the 90s, we thought we were so cool. Hip new fashion statement, WWJD bracelet. Actually, it was 100 years old, that phrase. It had become popular back in the 1890s because of a book. The book was a fictional story. The book opens with a homeless guy coming to church one Sunday. And as he walks down the center aisle, you know, people are kind of getting out of his way. And these good church people don't know what to do with him. I mean, their experience of God, their religion consists of showing up to church once a week, singing a few songs about God, dropping a couple of bucks in the offering bag, listening to a boring sermon, you know, if you don't go to Christ's community, and, and, and then you go home and you come back the next Sunday and you do the whole thing again. Well, there was a pastor by the name of Charles Sheldon who was sick and tired of people claiming to be Christians when they weren't willing to do what Jesus would do seven days a week, when they weren't willing to learn what Jesus had taught and put it into practice. And so he wrote a book called In His Steps, the subtitle of which was, What Would Jesus Do? WWJD. Now that's the question that John addresses in 1 John 2. What would Jesus do? Listen to these two verses. Verses 5 and 6. John says, If anyone obeys God's word, God's love is truly made complete in that person. This is how we know we are in him, in Christ. This is how you know if you have a relationship with Jesus or not. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. John says, okay, you claim to be a Christ follower? Then walk as Jesus walked. Don't claim to be a Christ follower if Jesus is not your own model. Now, several moments ago, I said Jesus wants to be your representative. He wants to be the one who gives his life in your place on the cross to pay for your sins. And I might have left you with the impression that that's kind of the sole reason for which Jesus came to the planet. So he's, he's born in Bethlehem so that he can grow up and eventually give his life on a hill called Calvary. And what happens in between is no big deal. That's why a lot of people come to church at Christmas time to celebrate the birth, and they come again Good Friday and Easter weekend to celebrate the death and resurrection because the span of time in between doesn't really matter, right? Wrong, John says, 1 John 2, verse 6. 
What happened between Jesus' birth and death, extremely important. What he was doing, what was giving us an example to follow. He was teaching and he was doing certain good deeds. And then time and again in Scripture we read, so imitate Jesus. And even Jesus himself says this. He finishes washing his disciples' feet at the Last Supper. And he says, now you guys know what I've done for you? What I've done is I've set you an example so that you should do as I have done to you. You say, well, let me get this straight. So then I look for people with dirty feet. Well, I, I think you probably get this. You look for people who need to be served. You, you go through each day willing to do the yucky things that nobody else wants to do if Jesus is your role model because Jesus said, I wash dirty feet. Now, do as I've done. Let, let me warn you something here. You know, if Jesus is not your role model... He can't be your representative. See, so if you, you think you can have the representative part, like I like that part where he dies on the cross and I get my sins forgiven, but following him as my role model, I'll leave that on the trash heap. No, no Jesus will not be treated as a get-out-of-jail-free card, no. Now, I'm not suggesting to you that you've got to perfectly do what Jesus would do in order to earn your salvation. You can't earn your salvation. None of us can None of us can do enough good deeds to offset the counterbalance uh, corresponding number of sinful deeds. The wages of sin is what? Death. How do you pay for your sins? Somebody's got to die. So either you die for your sins eternally or you put your trust, your faith in a representative in Jesus who's done it on your behalf. You're saved by faith in Jesus, not by anything you do. However... What is the evidence that your faith is genuine? What, what is the evidence that Jesus has become your representative? It's the fact that you now want him as your role model. It's the fact that you want to do what Jesus would do. See, you, you want to start treating people as Jesus would treat people. And if Jesus has truly become your representative, you, you want to reverence God like Jesus would reverence God. You want to start avoiding certain sinful behaviors like Jesus would avoid those sinful behaviors. You want to do with your money what Jesus would do with your money. See, the, the proof of the pudding that Christ has become your representative is you want him as your role model. You want to do what Jesus would do. You say, well, how do you find out what Jesus would do? You go back to the text. You go back to the story of his life. You go back to the scripture, and you become a student of this book, learning what Jesus did and what Jesus taught. You get it? Good. But one footnote to the whole, whole deal here. Don't even try to do what Jesus would do until you've surrendered your life to him. Because the fact of the matter is you don't have the power to pull it off. Jesus promises that if you'll surrender your life to him, he'll send his spirit to come live on the inside. And one of the things the, the Holy Spirit of God comes to do in your life is give you the power to do what Jesus would do. You know, Christmas, tomorrow, some of you are going to open a package and you're going to get that electronic gadget, that toy that you wanted, and then you're going to see the horrible words on the package, batteries not included. 
And that thing you hold in your hand won't be able to do what it's intended to do until you slip batteries into it. And you won't be able to do what Jesus would do until his spirit comes to live on the inside. And that doesn't happen until you surrender your life to Christ. And so I would say to you, let 2012 be be the year when, when you bend your knee to Jesus and you say, I want you as my representative, but I also want to begin to follow you as my role model. Give me your Holy Spirit to help me do that. Now, one last thing. What would Jesus do is the third reason that he came in the flesh to give us an example. The fourth is he came to be our resource. Jesus came in the flesh to be our resource. And I got to tell you some, something somewhat embarrassing to me here. This happened a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we did this great big performance, This is Christmas. We had over 6,000 people show up on uh, several nights in succession. One of the great things about it is I got to meet some of you who attend our DeKalb or our Blackberry Creek or, or our, our Bartlett campuses. And one lady introduced herself and she said, I go to the DeKalb campus and my husband is the assistant football coach at NIU. Now, those of you who are watching at DeKalb right now, you're already beginning to cheer because you know where this is going. And I looked at her and I said, oh, the football coach at NIU. I, I said, I got to admit, I don't really follow college football. I said, yeah, I follow the Bears, which hasn't been hugely enjoyable this year. But I looked at her and I said, so tell me, how did NIU do football-wise this year? <laughs> That's what she did, too. She laughed at me. And then she looked at me and she said, now, you're kidding, right? And I said, no, I'm not kidding. I, I don't follow college football. And she said, no, this is a joke. And I said, no, it's not a joke. And she says, well, we just won a huge playoff game. We're going to the Orange Bowl. I said, I'm like, oh, God, get me out of here really quick. <laughs> and the uh, DeKalb folks are booing at their campus right now. You don't know. You know, but the fact of the matter is that I live in, in Batavia. Now, I suppose, even though I'm not a, a follower of college football, if I lived in DeKalb, it would be pretty hard to ignore all the red and black going up all over and the orange for Orange Bowl you're, you're seeing appear everywhere. But I don't live there. And the reason I give you this analogy is because some of us are convinced that God is as out of touch with our personal lives as I'm out of touch with NIU football. See, God doesn't live in my neighborhood. God doesn't work where I work. Doesn't have my family. I mean, how many times have you wondered, does, does God really understand what it's like for me to be out of work for nine months? Does God really understand what it's like for me to have a child that's bullied at school? Or to be single when I'd really like to be married? Or to struggle with pornography? or to suffer with a chronic illness, or to be ditched by an ex-so-called friend. I mean, God is infinite. God is majestic. God is omnipotent. God is eternal. God is so far out of my league that it's almost embarrassing for me to bother him by asking for help. You ever felt this way? Maybe you feel this way tonight, Christmas Eve, 2012. Friends, we have a God who became one of us in Bethlehem. We have a God who became one of us. And this means, according to the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament, that Jesus can understand anything we're going through. Hebrews refers to Jesus as a sympathetic high priest. 
Now, the job of the high priest in Old Testament times was to present people's needs to God. And, and interestingly, oftentimes, of course, with so many people and one high priest, he didn't even know the people personally that he was representing before God. But Jesus is a sympathetic high priest who knows you intimately and wants to present your needs to God. Listen to these verses. Hebrews 4, verses 14 and 15. Since we have a great high priest who's gone through the heavens, that is Jesus, Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. The writer, writer of Hebrews says there, there is not a problem that you can encounter. There is not a temptation that you could struggle with that Jesus would not understand. This is one of the reasons that God became one of us. Now, your part of the deal, according to verse 16 that I just read to you, is to approach his throne of grace, to ask for mercy and for help, to pray, to say, Lord, I know you understand what I'm going through because you, you were one of us. About a week ago, I was having coffee at Starbucks with a, a new buddy of mine. He's got stage four cancer. It's so rare that only a handful of people in the United States have it. He's got two boys under five years of age. And as he, he began to express profusely his gratitude that I would get together with him for coffee, I said, whoa, you, know, you, you need to understand that I don't begin to comprehend what you're going through. I don't begin to comprehend what you're going through. But I know somebody who does. I know somebody who's looked death in the eye. I know somebody who has unlimited resources of mercy and grace with which to help you. And that's Jesus. Yeah, I, I don't know what you struggle with today, whether it's a, a sadness, a grief this time of year, whether it's some kind of baggage you're under, something you can't get rid of in your life that you'd like to get rid of, some conflict in a relationship, some hardship, some trial, some financial debt. There's a person who understands and is willing to put the resources of, of, of heaven at your disposal. His name is Jesus. Why did Jesus become one of us? so that he could reveal God to us. He is the human embodiment of the glory of God. If you want to get to know God, get to know Jesus. Read one of his biographies. Secondly, he became one of us so he could be our representative. He had to be a people in order to represent people on the cross. The question is, has he become your representative? Have you asked him to? Third, he came to be a role model to say, this is how it's done. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've taught. Go and do likewise. And lastly, he came to be your resource. Would you bow together with me in prayer? I'm going to turn things over at this point to the pastors at the other campuses. But as we all bow in prayer here in St. Charles, in just a moment we'll sing Silent Night, Holy Night. But right now, I want to give you just one quiet moment of reflection because right now you face what might be for you the most important decision of your life if you're one of those who's not made it before, and that is, will you make Jesus your representative? If you've never done it before or you're not sure, here's the kind of prayer you need to pray. I'll give you some 
some words to use, and you pray them from your heart, okay? Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. And I know that my sin deserves death because by disobeying you, I have unplugged from the giver of life. But I understand that Jesus became one of us so that he could die in my place. It's almost too good to be true. But tonight I believe it. And I give you my sins, Jesus. And I ask you, become my representative, please. Forgive me. And as a sign of the sincerity of my faith, I want to follow you. In 2013, I want to follow you. I want to become one who knows your words so that I can see what you did and I could learn what you taught and I could put it into practice as your spirit comes to live on the inside. Please send your spirit into my heart now. Now, I'm going to pause in this prayer, and while your head is still bowed, I'm going to ask you to do something tangible, because sometimes when you make a decision in your heart, you're not sure afterwards, did I do that or didn't I do that? So here's how to make it tangible. If you've just prayed that prayer, I want Jesus to be my representative. You can't remember having prayed it before, but doggone it, tonight you prayed it and you meant it from your heart. Would you do this? Just stick your hand in the air and then back on your lap. It's just a simple way of saying, yep, that's me. I want Jesus to be my representative. Put it up high and put it down in your lap. Good. Good. All around the auditorium. Up in the balcony. All right. I can see those hands. God, I just want to thank you that you became one of us in the person of Jesus. Jesus, we want to honor you tonight, not only by confessing you as Savior, representative on the cross, but also confessing you as the new king of our lives the role model that we desire to follow. We pray all this in your name. Amen.